0: You know, Christian can make anybody sound good, can he? Come on, let's just be honest about it. Hey, it's great to be here with you. I I love this church. I love being here with you. So it's a real honor for me to be here to uh, share with you this morning. I would love just to very briefly start off with prayer as we jump in here. So would you please pray with me? Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my God, my rock, and my redeemer, Father, open our eyes and our ears now to hear what the Spirit of God has to say to each one of us here this day. We commit this time to you by your Holy Spirit, asking it in Jesus' name, amen. It's very dangerous to talk about a movie that you haven't seen yet. It doesn't make a lot of sense, but I'm gonna venture into that this morning. I feel like I'm an outsider because I haven't seen Dunkirk yet. But in history, it is one of my favorite stories. I've been talking about Dunkirk since about 1991, and I have yet to see the movie because I was on the road the past few weeks, but, and I can't wait to see it. I trust that most everybody here has seen it. I don't know. I've heard it's a phenomenal, phenomenal movie. Have you seen Dunkirk? What? One person? Was it good? Two people? Wow. Okay. Okay. Maybe, uh, well, anyway, there's this movie called Dunkirk that you've never heard about. But you should probably go see it. I hear it's quite popular. It's, it's an amazing true story. I hope they didn't mess it up in the movie. But it's a true story about the spring of 1940. And the forces of Hitler are, are just advancing on some troops and they're trapped at Dunkirk. And uh, you've got a lot of troops that just, after a while, they just said, you know, that this is a lost cause. And they just gave up. But there's about 330,000 of the British troops and lots and lots of allies who are also there who they, they don't give up. But the, all seems lost. It just seems hopeless. They're trapped in, you know, because in front of them you have the ocean and behind them you have the, the you know, huge forces of Hitler and they're advancing and all seems lost. There's no way to rescue them. They've got some ships in Britain and they have enough ships to rescue about, actually about 17,000 soldiers, but the rest would be lost. And so what takes place is a miracle because over nine days, over 900 ships from England make their way to the, the, you know, to this you know, very, very small beach actually, and they rescue these soldiers. Now, when I say ships, it was everything that you can imagine. It was ships. It was lots of fishing vessels. It was lots of, lots and lots of recreational vessels. It was some sailboats. There was even a couple rowboats involved. I mean, if it would float, it would used. I mean, it was just this incredible thing where everybody takes everything that floats and they head for Dunkirk and off the shores they rescue these people. And over these nine days, this amazing miracle takes place and as the last man is pulled off the shore and they are all rescued alive, Churchill stands before the House of Commons and gives one of the greatest speeches probably ever in history when he says, We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields. We shall fight in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We will never surrender. The reason why Dunkirk stirs my heart is because I think it's a picture of real community. It's a picture, I think, of all of our lives because there comes that point in which we all feel like we need to be rescued. There comes that point in everybody's life where we feel like in one sense we're on the shores of Dunkirk and in one sense there is no hope. And it is community, it is those that come around us, it is those who come in and in one sense rescue us that creates that real connection, that creates that thing that we all desperately need. Everyone was created ultimately to be a part of the body of Christ. We here are a part of the body of Christ. If one suffers, we all suffer. You see, to be a part of a real community is not a program in a church. It's a core value in the church. So when I take a small group to be involved with and a church picnic, as much as I love a good church picnic, the place to be involved is a small group because that is a place where we can find real community. The local church is a place that really creates that community because it fights against those things which wear down our culture. Isolation, being lonely, feeling independent, feeling secluded. So I wanna walk through just four very basic aspects of why I believe it's so important to be really engaged in a strong community. I wanna talk about the fact that we were created for community The fact that there is a crisis of community. And then I want to talk about the church and community. So let's start off and talk about, first of all, we are created for community. Here's a great psalm, which I love. All It's Psalm 95, which is oftentimes used in the church as a call to worship. And it's one of the most glorious psalms that call us to bow down to worship God. It says this, Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving. Extol him with music and song, which is just what we've been doing here today, right? For the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, come. Let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God and we are the people of His pasture, the flock under His hand. It's a powerful call to worship. It's a powerful call for us to realize that all of our life is worship before our Lord, that we need to be people engaged in worship if we're here on Sunday morning or if we're at work, if we're at home. We're called to be people of worship we're also called to be people of worship in the context of fellowship. You know, when we talk about fellowship, when we talk about community, we have to be realistic just in the way we think about it because there's a gap between the ideal and the real, right? Because if you long for the ideal and you just constantly, constantly criticize things, that's just immaturity. But on the other hand, if you want the real but you strive for that, which is just, in one sense, it's just, you you know, it's just not real. There's a tension in there and we have to learn how to live with that tension because we are all broken people. And anytime you enter into real community, there will be brokenness, there will be challenges. But this Psalm is given to us in the context of fellowship. It is not just a personal Psalm, it is a corporate Psalm. And sometimes I think that we know that Psalm so well that I think that we miss the fact that it does take place in the context of real community. Let's go through it one more time. It is in the plural. It is so obvious, I think, at times that we just actually miss it. It says this, come let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving. Extol him with music and song. Come let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. He is our God. We are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. You see, so much of life is about community and relationships. That's the way that God created us. When you hear a great song, when you see a great movie, what's the first thing that you want to do? You want to go find somebody that you care for and you want to share it with them. I just heard the most amazing song. You've got to hear this song. I just saw this movie. I just read this book. You've got to read this. You've got to see it. You've got to hear it. Why? Because that's how God created us. Because we are meant to be a part of each other's lives. And we really can't even enjoy life until we begin to share things with each other. You see, this psalm is a corporate call to worship, because worshipping together leads us into deeper relationships within the church family, and enhanced community within the church family ultimately will lead to a much greater impact in Lee Summit and Kansas City, this nation and this world. You see, the supreme example of this comes from the life of Jesus in Mark chapter 3 when it says that he called 12 men to be with him. And the life of Jesus is a picture of him living in real community. It's a picture of him traveling, living, going through all of life with these men that he has called to be a part of this band of brothers. So much of what they go through is a picture of what we are called to. It's far from being just academic, but it is real, real life. So why is this so difficult? Why do we struggle with things about community? Let's talk about the crisis of community. You see, people are very, very different. And I know that there's one sense in which you might say, well, you know, I would be a part of a small group. I would want to jump in. But here's my fear. People can be really different from Actually, where, you know where I am. You're going to have things as far as age, and you're going to have gender, and you might have things as far as race. And you might think, w- if we start to talk about politics, I don't know if I want to be involved in a small group, and because you've got Republicans and Democrats, and I don't know which side I am, and you have a state line here, and some are in Kansas, and some are over here in Missouri, and you do really don't want to, you know, we could go on and on as the massive differences. Maybe you have a mindset of. You know, I want to be with people just exactly like me. I want to be able to be a part of a small group of people that are really at the exact same place in life, going through the exact same thing, that share the exact same views, that have the same religion, that have the same faith, that have all of these things. Those are the people I want to stand with. And I would encourage you to realize that God has called us to be a part of a community. And we need each other. Martin Niemöller was a Lutheran theologian that served under Hitler. And at the very start of the reign of Hitler, he was very confused and wasn't sure if this was right or wrong. But as time went on, very quickly he saw that this was a terrible thing. And soon before the beaches of Dunkirk became a story, Martin was placed in prison. And while he was in prison, he thought about the fact that he had been given a chance to be a part of a real community, but he had walked away from it, and he wrote one of the most amazing small phrases that echoes in my mind to this day. He said this, first they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out. Why? Because I was not a socialist. Then they came for those involved in the trade unions and I did not speak out. Why? Because I was not involved in a trade union. Then they came for the Jews and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. And then they came for me and there was nobody left to speak. That's powerful. We're part of a community that has been called together. Why is it such a struggle? Why do we fear small groups? Because everybody has a fear, if you really knew me, you wouldn't like me. You see, everybody has that fear. You see, our fear is that you will really, really love me, but you won't know me. And so that's going to make me feel hollow and shallow and extremely just not real. My greatest fear is that you will know me and you will not love me. That's, that's everybody's greatest fear. But the thing that we long for in life is to be both fully known and fully loved. That's what we long for in life, that you would really, really know me and that you would still love me. First of all, in this earth, there will always be that gap because the only place where that's ultimately found is in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, you are both fully known and fully loved. He knows everything about you and he still passionately cares about you and he loves you. A small group is a place, though, to work with that tension, to realize that I can come and I can be real. I can be authentic. I can speak up. I can be honest. And I can trust that there will be those who even begin to find out things about me that I'm not proud of and that they will still love me. Listen, everybody's broken. We're all broken. We all desperately need community. But keep in mind that only in Jesus Christ, not ultimately in marriage, even though that's our goal, But only in Jesus are we absolutely fully known and fully loved. That's why we need Jesus. Another crisis of community comes about because of social media. Now, this might, you know, I don't know that this might actually offend you, but your Snapchat, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, it's not community. Social community, excuse me, social media is where really authentic real community goes and dies. And I think that we have come to the point where we are so convinced that this is absolutely my community because you know I'm I'm engaged with these people through Facebook or I'm engaged with these people in this way And that's my real community. I love the fact that you stream your services. I love the fact that there's a chance to be heard and to be taught. And I absolutely believe that that's a good tool. But let me say to the person right now that listens to this message in Florida, we hope you're encouraged today. We hope you grow today. We hope that you find great comfort today. But this is not your community. Your community is a local body. It's a place where you can locally go, where you can be engaged. You see, something terrible happened in history about the fourth century. And what was terrible was this people that loved Jesus began to build buildings, which didn't exist for the first four hundred years of Christianity. They began to build buildings. And then about twelve fifty, it hit the ultimate heresy in which they begin to take these buildings and they begin to call those buildings the church. Friends, nowhere in Scripture are we ever told that our community should come into our church. Never. We're told in Scripture that we need to take the church into our community. We need to take the church into the workplace in our community. We need to take the church into every fabric of our community. But we have this mindset that this, this is the church. Friends, this building that we're in right now, this is not the church. You are the church. The people are The church. And we have this mindset of, well, there's really no church unless I'm inside of this building. Friends, there can be church in a home. As you meet in small groups, as you open up your life, as you walk through life with people, as they are there for you, that is real community. That is real church. Once again, small groups are not a program. They're a core value of this church. There's so many commands in Scripture, and we could go through, this could be, Three or four messages. There are so many commands in Scripture that we share our lives with each other, that we bear our burdens, that we pray for one another, that we care for one another in this way. They are commands to the church that cannot be fulfilled in a place like this on Sunday morning. There are so many commands in Scripture that can only be met in the context of a small group, of a real community in that way. That's why we're challenging you and encouraging you to come into that place. So let's talk about the church and community. Let's talk about what we are called to. Once again, be aware that people will be disillusioned in a church. It just happens. It's not if you get your nose bent out of shape in the church, it's when you get your nose bent out of shape in the church. A man who died under the Nazis was a man named Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And he wrote a classic on fellowship. He wrote a classic book about community that's called Life Together. And in this book, he says this. To be disillusioned with your local church is actually a good thing because it destroys the false, this false expectation about perfection. The sooner that you just give up the fact that the, this crazy illusion that the church must be perfect really to love people, then we will just stop pretending and we will start admitting that we're all imperfect and that we desperately need grace. And when you admit that you need grace, this is the beginning of real community. You see, when you don't admit that you need real community, you play the church game. You come to church, hey, how are you? I'm fine, how are you? I'm fine. Hey, man, have a great day. Church becomes a lot, like a big elevator ride, right? You come in, you face the front, and you just hope to death that nobody talks to you. Don't ever ride, you know, I, don't ever ride with me because I, I talk in elevators. <clears throat> I make people very uncomfortable. And if it's a crowded, crowded elevator and I'm with a lot of friends, I'll turn to my friend and I'll say, hey, how's that rash? Is that cream helping? <laughs> that never goes over well in an elevator. But anyway, <clears throat> when you're involved in a church, small group in a church place where you can really express some real real love and community. And with and when you're with people that are different from you, you will get to know the Lord Jesus Christ better and better. How's that possible? One story that I love is the story about three friends, Jack, Ron, and Chuck. Jack, Ron, and Chuck were three friends and they spent time together and they smoked cigars together and they did lots of life together, and they also wrote books, and they're also three of the greatest authors of the past 100 years. Jack was a nickname for a man named C.S. Lewis. Ron was the nickname used by a man named J.R.R. R. Tolkien, who wrote some uh, amazing books, like the, like the Lord, Lord of the Rings and all those books, and then Chuck was a man named Charles Williams. These three were amazing friends. But it's interesting... Because at times, Lewis felt a little bit on the outside. He felt like Ron and Chuck were really, really close, and Jack felt like he was kind of close, but he always felt just, just a bit jealous. And then Williams died. And so Lewis thought, okay, now I'm gonna really get to know Tolkien well, because I wanna have a lot more time with him, there's not gonna be three of us, there's just going to be two, and so the fact now that it's one-on-one, we're gonna become extremely close. Lewis would write and say, you know, it was interesting because as I spent more time with Ron, I realized that I knew him less and less, and I could not understand why until one day it dawned on me, there were certain parts of Ron's personality that only Chuck could draw out. I, I, I could not draw this out. And I began to learn now the fact that Chuck was gone, there were certain aspects of Tolkien's life that I could not access anymore. And I begin to understand if you really want to know somebody, know them in community. Because that's how you really get to know people. If that's true of people, how much more so of God? You see, I get to know people better in the context of a small group, but I get to know God so much better because there's aspects of God that you will pull out that, I, that are just absolutely brand new to me. And you'll talk about God in a certain way and you'll talk about your prayer life in a certain way and you'll talk about the way that you worship in a certain way and I'm gonna think, man, that's that's not how I worship but that's amazing because I'm starting to learn more and more about God just through your perspective. It's like the hope diamond in one sense. You know, if you ever go see like an amazing diamond, it's always on a place where it turns because just there's so many facets to it and it's so brilliant and as it turns, it looks pink and then it looks blue, then it looks yellow, then it looks green. It's just fascinating because there's so many, so many facets of the way the light hits it. That's like the Lord in the context of a small group. People have lots of perspectives. And as I'm in that context, I listen to them and I grow with them and I understand them and I learn from them. And I come to love Jesus more and more. So I love diversity in small groups. I love to have different ages and different races and different perspectives and um, all sorts of different ways to really see the Lord. Experience real community. We desperately need it. Every person here shares one thing in common. And that is that we're longing for ultimately some hope in life. And I believe the hope that we are longing for is ultimately the person of Jesus Christ. And that no matter what the barriers might be here today, if we look at Jesus Christ and our eyes are upon him, the barriers come down. Now, this might shock you, but I'm kind of a sports guy, and uh, probably a little bit too much, and uh, like you, I stayed up late and watched a baseball game last night, and I stayed up late and watched the baseball game after I got home from the Sporting Kansas City game. Uh, So anyway, it was kind of a sports night last night, uh, but I enjoy that kind of stuff a great deal. So it was 1991, and the Braves were in the World Series. The Braves were in the World Series for the first time in a long, long time against the Twins, and uh, it was an amazing series, Uh, absolutely incredible series. Game three was in Atlanta. Their first World Series, you know, I mean, it was the the first game there in, I mean, decades and decades and decades, so it was a big, big big-time ticket. So I had a friend that uh, had a nice job at CNN. He called and said, hey, man, I got a great ticket. Would you like to go to the game. And I said, really? The World Series game three? Yeah, I want to go to the game. I would love to go to the game. He said, all right, man, the ticket's yours. I said, that'll be a great time with you. He goes, no, no, man, it's not with me. You, you know, I've got one ticket. And uh, man, I know that you're a sports guy. You know what I'd love for you to go? And I said, so I want to go alone. He goes, yeah. And I said, okay, okay, I'll go. So I went to the game three. And uh, I mean, it was an amazing time. So I'm walking in, and and I mean, there's a you know lots of folks out there. I'd, I'd like to buy a ticket, and I'm thinking I could sell this right now for like a thousand bucks. But it was a gift, and it would be hard to explain to the guy that gave me the ticket. Well, I sold it, and I bought a new TV with your money. But anyway, so uh, I did not sell it. But I walked in, and you know everybody said give me something from the World Series. So uh, you really, this is a true story in the way. in, I bought a bag of peanuts. So after the World Series, I could go back to my friends and say. World Series peanut for you, <laughs> World Series peanut. That's a true story. Anyway, so I go and I sit down in my seat, section one forty, row twenty four, seat eight. It's awkward to be the game that big alone. It's just awkward because you know what? So much of what makes that game exciting, community, being there with somebody. So I come in and I sit down and just kind of awkwardly there alone, and then. Uh, It's nice man and his wife come and sit to my left. And then uh, there is this whole, then a very, very, very nice old, old man comes and sits here with with, with all of his kids. Very nice African-American man, and he was so passionate for the game. And to my right is one more African-American man and his family. Uh, Behind me is a young family family, and with a bunch of kids, and I mean a bunch of rowdy kids, and the row behind them is the Wachovia Bank Suite. Now, this suite has got sliding doors on it, and it was a suite where you could close the doors and there's no sound and it's just unbelievably nice and you could open up the doors and feel more and more of the, you know, just more and more of the game. And you could tell instantly that the people in the Wachovia suite were irritated that right there were like a bunch of teenagers that were being very loud and very, very noisy. And you could just sense that, oh my gosh, we paid all the money for this nice suite and we have to sit right behind these rowdy kids. And so most of the game they had their thing closed up so they wouldn't have to hear these kids. But every so often just kind of, you know, look back at the food back there and think, well, it'd be nice to be in the Wachovia bank suite. So the game starts. And it's absolutely an incredible game. And, uh, you know, the Braves score. And so I'm there. I'm thinking, you know what? I need to cheer for the Braves. I really don't like the Twins. If you're from Minnesota, I'm sorry. But let's just be honest. Who in their right mind would want to like the Twins? But anyway, (laughs) so I'm there, you know, cheering for the Braves. And um, so the Braves score. And I'm like, you you know what? You want to slap five with somebody. You want to. But I'm not there with anybody. And so I'm just kind of like. Yeah, you know, okay. Oh, I am just very awkwardly there. About the sixth inning, something happened because this game goes back and forth. Braves score, twins score 1 0, 1 1, 2 1, 2 2, just goes back and forth. And about the sixth inning, something just began to happen. The Braves scored, and I turned to the man next to me, and I, boom, and I turned to this African American man in front of me, boom, and the African American man beside me. It was exciting and all of a sudden I'm thinking, okay, I I don't know these people, I don't know their names but there's some wall here that's beginning to come down. The Braves tie it in the ninth, dramatic fashion. And when they tie it, I mean, it's, it's just big high fives and it's like, whoa. And it's not just a high five, but it's kind of the high five and then you hold each other's hands for just a second. It's kind of like, wow, this is unbelievable. And to the kids behind me who are loud and noisy. And, and then I see that the Wachovia Bank Suite, the, the door begins to open a little bit. Bottom of the 12th, David Justice is on second base. Mark Lemke is up the bat. Lemke hits a little flare. Justice comes around third, comes in, scores, and the Braves win. I turned to the man on this side, and I hugged him. I turned to the man in front of me, and I hugged him. I turned over here, and I hugged the man next to me. I turned around to hug the kids, but they were hugging the people on the Wachovia Bank Suite. It was incredible, I will never forget it. We are hugging, we are laughing, we're embracing. And there was community like I have not felt in so long. And I'm thinking, how could we walk in here as complete strangers about four hours ago and after four hours together, we are embracing and we're laughing and there is incredible, incredible sense of, we're all on the same team here. How's that possible? Because we were there with one goal, to see the Braves win the World Series. And everything else came down around it. Gender, race, age, income. Everything came down around it because we had one focus. When we have one central focus of Jesus Christ, and when our eyes are upon him, community is created because the barriers begin to come down. Don't ever forget that the only way that we can have real, true True community is because Jesus gave up community with the Father to come and to walk amongst us. Jesus sacrificed that so that we could have it. Jesus gave his life so that we could have life. Jesus sacrificed that comfortable relationship being right there physically with his father so that so that we could one day have that relationship of, of being with the Father. Community is possible only because of Jesus. Friends, we desperately need it. We desperately need to gather like this corporately. That's talked about in scripture. And we also desperately need to gather with the church in small groups. That's talked about in scripture. It's not an either or, it's a both end. And we need it all because we were created by God for community embrace that and live in that and know that it's only here because of Jesus. Let's pray together.